How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Welcome back to Misconduct. I'm Eileen, and joining me as always is Colleen. How are you doing, Colleen? I'm good. I'm really excited about the upcoming three-day weekend, because I feel like I have so much to catch up on for the podcast. But it'll be kind of a much-needed, I think, podcast-only weekend, which I'm kind of excited about. How are you? Same. I've been traveling every week this month. This This last trip was my last one, so now I'm home, and I'll be home for the long weekend, so it'll be good. Oh, that's great. Um, We have a new Patreon patron that we wanted to give a special thank you to. Thank you to Brittany for your Patreon support. If you're liking the show, you can see our rewards at patreon.com slash misconduct and consider pledging to the show. Uh, We're offering things like stickers and mugs. So if you have a minute, you should check it out. We have some five-star reviews to shout out. Uh, Thank you to Yazzie, Dilly Bar, 1972, and 8-Pointer for your feedback. We loved reading your comments. You guys are really the best and if you're liking the show please rate and review us on itunes your feedback helps us improve the show and rating helps others find the show as well if you follow us on twitter you might have seen us tweeting about a new campaign called hashtag two pods a day misconduct is taking part in the campaign and it's aimed at introducing listeners to two independent podcasts each day for 30 days the campaign is giving visibility to some great indie podcasts that you may not have otherwise heard of And Two Pods a Day encourages you to listen more and listen indie. To find more shows like ours, follow Two Pods a Day on Twitter and Instagram, or you can search the hashtag Two Pods a Day. And we'll also be retweeting all the recommendations so you can find them there too. We are also doing a promotion for the month of May. We hit 50,000 listens and we actually literally just hit 100,000 this week. So to celebrate and say thank you, we are giving away two misconduct mugs with stickers and a personalized thank you note to two lucky winners. But that's not all. Eight other lucky people will win a misconduct sticker and a personalized thank you note as well. And all you got to do is like us on our social media and share us with your friends. We'll have a post pinned to our social media profile so you can easily share that. At the end of the month, we'll announce the winners on air. And after all that housekeeping, let's get to the show. On October 17, 2014, the body of a young woman was found in a Motel 6 in Indiana. She was found in the bathtub with the shower running by her friend, who had grown concerned when her repeated texts were not being returned. 
When her body was found, it was clear that she had been strangled. Police quickly narrowed down a suspect based on cell phone records and security camera footage. Once arrested, the suspect confessed to the murder. Law enforcement thought they were dealing with an open and shut case. That was until the suspect confessed to six additional murders and told the police he was willing to lead them to the bodies. Today we will discuss a suspected serial killer whose killings may span multiple decades and multiple states. We will look at the circumstances that surrounded his capture and where the investigation is as of today. On October 17, 2014, at 5.13 p.m., Africa Hardy texted her friend Shamika Cunningham, saying that she had just let her client in. She was in room 158 at the Motel 6 in Hammond, Indiana. Africa, Shamika, and another woman had started a small-scale escort service that they had advertised on on Backpage.com. On the night in question, Africa, or Octavia, which is the name she went by on her Backpage ad, had been contacted to set up an appointment by a man who called himself Big Boy Appetite. After getting the text letting her know that the appointment had started, Shamika waited for Africa to text her again, letting her know that the appointment was over. When Africa went past the normal appointment time, Shamika started to get worried. After what seemed like an eternity, Shamika got a text from Africa's phone. A return text should have put Shamika at ease. It should have been a text letting Shamika know that the appointment was done and that Africa was ready to be picked up. However, the texts received were suspicious and made Shamika decide to meet up with another friend to go find Africa at the motel. Shamika suspected that even though the text came from her phone, that they were not sent by Africa. She also tried to call Africa's phone repeatedly, but there was no answer. The two got to the Motel 6 shortly before 9.30. They gained entry to their room and found Africa dead in the tub with the shower running. Africa Hardy was a 19-year-old woman who had recently moved back to Chicago from Aurora, Colorado. Hammond, Indiana, where her body was found, is about a half-hour drive from Chicago. Her family is originally from Chicago, but her mom, Lori, was still in Aurora, This move back to Chicago was supposed to be an opportunity for Africa to spread her wings. Africa and her mom were close and texted often. The two were mother and daughter, but they were also friends. They talked about everything from Africa re-enrolling in school and looking for a new job to deeper conversations you would expect from people who have a close relationship. Her mom had been expecting to see her back in Aurora for the upcoming Thanksgiving holiday. A former boyfriend described Africa as a terrific person and friend. He also called her a very loving, outgoing, and funny person. Since she had moved back to Chicago, Lori had become concerned about the crowd Africa was hanging out with. Lori said the group just seemed to think they were invincible. On the night of the murder, Africa had texted Lori saying that she was okay and reassuring her not to worry. Shamika immediately turned over all the information she had on the client to the police. This information included anything that he had provided to them in their communication while setting up the appointment and his phone number. In the hotel room, there are clear signs of a struggle. Uh, Crime scene investigators found broken fingernails, condom wrappers, a shirt button, and the bed had been moved away from the wall. In the bathroom, Africa's body was found in the tub, like we said, with a shower on. There were red marks around her neck indicating that she had been strangled with something thin. It would later come out that the killer had strangled her with their bare hands and then an extension cord that they had brought with them. The person who killed Africa also threw used condoms on her body after she was placed in the shower. Yeah, that's awful. Police also canvassed the Motel 6 and found security footage with a man driving up in his car, parking, and entering room 158. 
They caught the license plate on his SUV as it was leaving, and it was traced to a man from nearby Gary, Indiana. His name was Darren Dion Van. On October 18th, one day after Africa's murder, he was arrested. Darren Dion Van was born on March 21st, 1971. At the time of Africa's murder, he was 43 years old. When he was arrested, it became apparent that Van had a lengthy record. Van was born in Indiana, but tracing his early life is most easily done through his arrest record. He was arrested on unspecified charges in 1993 when he was 22 in Cherry Point, North Carolina. This was shortly after he was given a less than honorable discharge from the Marines two years after he joined. In 1995, he married a woman named Maria, who was 30 years older than him. He was 24 in 1995, so this would put Maria in her 50s at the time of the marriage. The pair made their home in Texas. Maria's son from a previous relationship, who I imagine is close in age with Van, gave interviews to news outlets after Van's arrest, expressing his distrust for him. The son said that Van rarely seemed present and was often lost in his own thoughts, but besides that, Van had a way making people feel uneasy or uncomfortable to the point that Maria's son didn't let his kids around Van. The start of Van's decline can be traced back to when he was fired from his job in 2004. Van and Maria moved from Texas back to Gary, Indiana. After the firing, Van had a hard time finding consistent work. Maria's son went to visit the two in Indiana and found them living in squalor. The year he lost his job, Van also had his first major run-in with the law. He was arrested on a Class D felony after attacking a woman who was later identified as his as his girlfriend, not his wife. According to the police report, Van showed up at the home of a man. Van believed this, his girlfriend was inside with this man. He threatened to burn the house down and was holding a gas can and a lighter. Then, in the front of the police, he grabbed his girlfriend and told the police to back off or he would set both of them on fire with the gasoline. He was literally holding her in a headlock with one hand and the gasoline and the lighter in the, in the other hand. He ignored her as she repeatedly asked to be let go up until the police grabbed him. Despite the shocking details of this crime, a Class G felony carried only a few months in jail. He was convicted and ultimately served 90 days. And I mean, I think 90 days. I, th- the crime itself is so appalling. Yeah. And just like the behavior surrounding it is so disturbing. I mean, that's basically, I mean, for a short time, but it's still, I mean, you're holding her hostage and threatening to set her on fire and you literally have the, the stuff to do it well, in and, and 90 after, days. After the cops show up, yeah, you grab her mm-hmm. in, in front of them and are like, okay, you guys need to back off. Otherwise, I'm going to set us both on fire. I mean, it's just the behavior and then only 90 days. I'm like, really? That's, that's all you get? Seems for- a little bit more serious than yeah. that. Yeah, but... In December 2007, Van relocated back to Austin. He was arrested for the rape of a 25-year-old woman. She had been sent by an escort agency on a client call to Van, and once she got inside, Van asked if she was a police officer. When she said no, he attacked. He choked her and struck her and then repeatedly raped her. Van was indicted in 2008 and pled guilty in 2009. He was sentenced to five years in prison later that year. Taking into account time served, Van was released from Texas prison in mid-2013. And again, I just don't know if that's enough time for holding somebody hostage and repeatedly raping them. Yeah, and is it because she was a sex worker? It's like, did she get a short, he get a shorter sentence? Because it was like, well, you know, you know like, she's a prostitute. And 
Yeah. Sometimes I wonder if that's the case in sentencing. Mm -hmm. If like somebody involved is a sex worker or then all of a sudden they just get less time because it's like, well, you know. If you weren't selling your body, then. Yeah, it was a crime of opportunity or you're a victim of circumstance. Right. Which is just so, ugh. But just either way, I could go on forever. I know. But either way, I just feel like, I mean, just not enough time. You held her hostage and raped her repeatedly in five years. And this is the second offense where he's acting out violently towards women. Right. You'd think that this would be caused to maybe, you know, hmm, this person is a danger. But, yeah, it's insane. So due to the rape conviction, Van was required to register as a sex offender. So I guess there's something. After his release, he was given permission to move back to Gary. Texas authorities did their due diligence and alerted Lake County that Van was planning on coming to the area. He was classified as a low-risk sex offender based on expert assessments, however. This classification indicated that this person had a lower likelihood of committing another sexual offense. Doesn't make sense to me. That That makes no sense to me either. (laughs) Given what happened before, but okay. In 2009, Maria filed for divorce, and the marriage was officially dissolved in 2010. They were married for 15 years. Despite filing for divorce, Maria told the court that these allegations against Van were shocking because she never knew him to be violent. In fact, she described him as someone who was loyal and protective of those around him. She said he didn't drink or use drugs, that if anything, he was a bit of a loner who preferred to keep to himself. (sighs) every serial killer Uh, he kept to himself because he was up to no good right Uh, neighbors in gary described him in a similar way he was quiet and kept to himself but he was overall a good neighbor he also participated in his local neighborhood watch and none of them seemed to know about his status as a registered sex offender As soon as he was arrested, Van did two odd things. First, he immediately confessed to killing Africa, and he even remarked that he was surprised that he was caught so quickly, but in a way that was very flippant, like, huh, I I don't understand why you guys caught me so fast. Mm. And the second odd thing that Van did was he volunteered additional information. Van said that Africa wasn't his first murder. In fact, he'd killed multiple women in the area since his relocation to Gary in mid-2013. He was offering to take the police to the locations of additional bodies. Van waived his rights and led an investigator around abandoned homes in Gary for a week. Altogether, the two would visit multiple houses and find six additional bodies. The investigator who took Van around Gary looking for his victims later described his experience to Lori, Africa's mom, saying he's evil, he's pure evil, he has no remorse, and he has no soul. Wow. So based on his own confessions, Gary Police Department had seven bodies on their hands. All of the victims had been killed in a period of less than a year and a half. We're going to discuss who they were in detail. Africa Hardy. We discussed Africa in the beginning of this episode. She was his final victim before his arrest. She was a sex worker who was on a call when she was killed, and she was 19 years old. Van admitted to setting up the appointment and that he was messaging her under the username Big Boy Appetite. He said that he drove to the motel with the intention of hurting her. He said the two had sex, and when it started to get more violent, Africa tried to fight him off. He then started to strangle her, first with his hands and then with a brown extension cord that he had brought along with him. Tierra Beatty was a 28-year-old woman living in Gary. 
On January 13th, 2014, she left her house to meet up with a friend and never came home. Her family waited a couple days to report her missing because it wasn't uncommon for her to leave for a couple days or even a week at a time. Her mom said that her last words to her before she walked out the door were, I love you and I'll be back. Her mom heard from her the next day and she said she sounded upset and wanted somebody to come get her, but they were unable to locate her. And after that, she was never heard from again. Her mom also said that she was mentally ill and prone to trusting people and that she was vulnerable and kind, which made her a target of people who were looking to take advantage of her. She left behind a two-year-old son. Her body was the second one investigators were led to, and she was found in a house underneath a wooden bench. Even though she'd been missing since January 2014, the coroner placed her date of death around August of 2014. Hmm. So she might have been missing for some other reason yeah. and maybe came across Van later. Yeah. But I mean, it sounds like she would sometimes leave and mm-hmm. weeks at a time, but that's quite a long time. Right. It's. I think that that would have been a long time for them not to hear from her. Nine mm-hmm. months or eight months is a long time. Aneth Jones was a 35-year-old who was last seen on October 8th, 2014, She was reported missing two days after she was last seen, and Anith's body was the first one that Van led the investigators to. They drove to an abandoned house on 43rd Avenue, and her body was found in a basement underneath a pile of tires and stuffed animals. Her Chevrolet prism was parked outside of the house her body would later be found in, but even though they found the car, she wasn't discovered until Van led investigators to her body realizing that they probably had something bigger than they bargained for on their hands after being led to two bodies the police started playing good cop with van they asked him to show them a third so they could train other police on homicide investigations van took the police to massachusetts street to a house that was filled with trash and leftover belongings of people who hadn't lived there in some time tracy martin 41 was last seen in june 2014 but was never reported missing Her body was found inside a closet in the house. An autopsy would later reveal that Van killed her by strangling her with her own necklace. Van told police that he killed Tracy because he thought she was a drug informant. After being told that she was not a drug informant, Van changed his story. He said that he killed her just because he felt like it. He said, and I quote, I killed her because I was mad and she was the first person I ran into. He also told police that he took his time killing her and that he made her suffer before putting her out of her misery. Guys, piece of work. And Christine Williams. Van said he targeted Christine Williams, a mother of four, because she allegedly owed him $40 for crack that he sold to her. Van assumed she was avoiding him so she didn't have to pay. But she was actually in jail on an unrelated charge and that's why he couldn't find her. He strangled her and hurt her body under a drop cloth in the basement of a flop house. She never was reported missing, but her mother-in-law said that she had not heard from her since February 2014. Sonia Billingsley was a 53-year-old from Gary and reported missing in early February 2014. Her body was found in an abandoned house with the seventh suspected victim. And Van said he couldn't remember if he raped her or what he used to strangle her with. Van told investigators after he had killed Billingsley, he was approached by a woman with a missing person's flyer with a picture of Billingsley on it. 
the woman said she was Billingsley's daughter and asked him if he had seen her. And he, you know, said no, but he managed to remember that. <laughs> Tanya Gatlin was found in the same house as Sonia Billingsley, and she had been missing since December 2013. Van said he didn't have a real reason for killing Billingsley or Gatlin. According to investigators, he said, anger, I guess. I guess I just wanted to hurt somebody because I feel like I shouldn't have went to prison the first time. You see what I'm saying? (laughs) And what he's referring to is the incident in Texas in 2007 when he was jailed for rape. He seemed to think that because he paid that woman for sex and didn't kill her, he should not have gone to prison because he didn't do anything wrong. And there's just so much wrong with that he's an evil son of a bitch yeah i agree with that cop i pure evil and this just shows i guess i don't know how society's view of sex workers because it's illegal and things like that i feel like it can trickle down to this sort of attitude i mean it's not an uncommon attitude you hear people who say like well can you even rape a sex worker like things like and i'm like of course you can i what kind of question is that yeah consent is consent doesn't matter whether you you know it's because you're paid or what you do for work i mean yeah it kind of drives me crazy that we still have these conversations but then you have like the worst case scenario where somebody who believes that also happens to have be a serial killer yeah and he yeah and that, that's his view i'm mad and then he took it out on other people but i'm mad i shouldn't have gone to jail because they Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You know, I didn't well, I kill her. I paid her. Yeah, I paid her, so I, I get to do what I want. Was Yeah, and then that's, that's the feeling, right? Like, I paid for you. You know, and yeah, you guys paid for, I'm sure you agreed on something, but you know, it's, it doesn't matter what you do. Like you said, I I have like a million thoughts about it and none of them are eloquent. Yeah. (laughs) That's my problem is I'm just like, oh, it's just the worst. It's just too bad. I just feel like it's just, you have this view because it's so negative and that's kind of what you get. And I feel like that's what trickles down to. I mean, that's right there. So after leading police to seven bodies in less than a week, Van just clammed up and stopped talking, but he had indicated there could be more victims. After Van's arrest, it came out in the press that the bodies he'd led them to could just be the tip of the iceberg. 
An article in the Daily Beast detailed out murders that fit Van's M.O. that took place in the times he lived in the area. Also, during the time he was in prison or not living in the area, those small towns saw a drop or a complete absence of unsolved strangulation deaths of women. In 2010, a journalist named Thomas Hargrove wrote to Gary PD to warn them that they might have a serial killer on their hands. He had been compiling FBI homicide data and found that there were 15 victims that fit Van's profile in the Gary, Hammond, and East Chicago areas. They were found strangled to death and their cases remained unsolved. Obviously, he didn't know who Van was, but he was just saying, Hey, by the way. Yeah, I'm looking at this murder data and what I see is that you have all these unsolved strangulation deaths that look to be related. That was in 2010. Yeah, and that's while while he would have been in prison. Hmm. The killings spanned from the 90s to the 2000s, and there was a break in the killings in the mid-2000s before they resumed again. There are also similar unsolved strangulation victims in Texas who fit Van's profile who were killed while he was potentially in the area. Basically, by this journalist's count, there could be at least 26 additional victims that Van killed. That's... So, A, disturbing, right? Oh, it's awful to think about, yeah, that he's just been, he's just like this cold calculated predator. Mm-hmm. And been running around for years. It's very grim sleeper-esque. Yeah. Right? I mean, and... and I think that his M.O. matches his 2007 assault mm-hmm. case. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, he's calling escort line, like escort services and asking for somebody to come over. Right. And then has sex with them, starts to get violent, and then he strangles them. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that there's, like, the correlation between the 2007 case and then what happened to Africa Hardy. Right. That, I think, is a clear... Yeah. And I think, also, the seven women that we just talked about, he's killed them all in a very short amount of time. Right. So quick. So, like, was it practice? Was it, you know... I don't think this is, like, his first time, right? Yeah. Or that he's just getting started. He seems to have his MO down and that he's been doing it for a while. And where to and where to put the bodies and everything, you know, to not... There, there were these houses that were in Gary. And, I mean, I'm, I, from what I understand in the research, there are a lot of abandoned houses mm. there. I mean, that's probably like that in any, you know, parts of any town. But right, yeah, you're going to have places. I mean, they had bodies in there for months, yeah. And no one knew. Mm-hmm. So you kind of knew where to put him. So I just, yeah, it's not his first rodeo. No. <laughs> so currently, investigators are at an interesting spot. So Van confessed to the murders, but he hasn't stood trial yet. He has been charged in the deaths of seven women we talked about, but the trial hasn't begun yet. Also, investigators are looking into these additional murders, trying to tie some of them to Van. On Wednesday, October 22nd, 2014, Van was charged with the deaths of Africa and Anise. He appeared before a judge with his hands and feet in shackles and refused to speak. He even refused to acknowledge his name when asked by the judge. A sheriff noted that Van had expressed his anger over the hearing being conducted in an open court with journalists in the courtroom. When the judge asked if he understood the reason for the hearing, Van didn't say anything. He just sat stone-faced and looked at the judge, but remained silent. The judge asked him to clarify why he was choosing not to take part in the hearing, and Van still refused to answer. The judge then addressed Van's public defender, telling him to clarify to his client that he, being Van, 
will sit in jail for the rest of his life until his hearing can take place and we can't proceed without his participation. Hmm. His public defender spoke quietly with Van, encouraging him to respond to the judge, but Van continued just to stand there and stare at the judge with no change in expression. Still says nothing. And Van ended up being held in contempt and a second hearing was scheduled for the next week. On October 29th, 2014, Van was in court again. And this time he was compliant with the proceedings. He was polite and clear and well-spoken with his answers. He detailed his criminal history and confirmed that he understood the charges against him. He entered a plea of not guilty to the charges of murder, murder in the perpetration of robbery, and robbery resulting in serious bodily injury. Even though he had been unhappy that his hearing had been in an open courtroom the week before, this hearing was held in an open session as well. So I'm not sure what changed. Maybe in the week he spent in jail, he accepted that he'd been caught and that the trial was going to proceed, you know, whether he liked it or not. Won't liked it or not. Like, at least if the trial proceeds, he doesn't just have to sit in a holding cell in jail. Yeah. So. Somebody talks some sense into him, maybe. So the trial was set to begin mid-2015. But that April, the trial was taken off the docket. The prosecution decided to file uh, and seek the death penalty against Van. Van had hoped that by providing the locations of the body to the investigators, they might be more willing to cut a deal, but that wasn't the case. Uh, Van's attorneys requested a delay after the death penalty filing. The defense said that they were not given adequate time to prepare for a death penalty case. The prosecution objected to the defense's request, but ultimately the judge sided with the defense. We had talked a little bit about death penalty cases in the U.S. in our episode about Clarence Brandley. Death penalty cases are a lot more involved than non-death penalty cases, and the pretrial work takes a long time. There are special filings for the, the prosecution needs to make, and the defense is allowed to ask for more time and resources to investigate alternate theories and the prosecution's evidence. To try to avoid a wrongful conviction, the entire trial is designed to take longer, so we reduce you know, the chance of any error. However, we have seen in some cases, the system doesn't work in the way it was designed always. In September 2015, after delays from the defense, the judge ruled that the trial was set to begin on January 26, 2016. That December, a month before the trial was due to start, the judge recused herself from the case. So judges in the United States can recuse themselves from presiding over a trial for a number of reasons, but the two main ones are because there's a potential conflict of interest or they do not believe that they are able to act impartially when hearing the case. Hmm. Since the judge recused herself, the trial did not proceed in January. Due to the recusal and additional evidence that was discovered, the trial was delayed again to July 2016. The delay turned out to be useful for the prosecution because in March 2016, they added five more murder charges to Van's existing two. The prosecution felt confident that they could proceed with the charges for the additional bodies Van led them to after his arrest. Also in March 2016, rape charges were brought against Van for an attack that took place on February 19, 2014. The survivor had arranged to meet a man named Darren through an escort service. The woman sometimes worked for the service to support her drug habit. And when she arrived to the agreed upon meeting place, Van came at her with a knife, tied her up, and then raped her multiple times oh. at knife point. 
He untied her and told her that she could leave. And as she got up to run away, he grabbed her and raped her again. Then he blindfolded her and forced her into his car. He drove her to a secluded neighborhood and began to fight with her. Van only stopped when he was scared off by a bystander who happened to see what was going on and ran over and the bystander happened to have a gun and that scared Van enough to run off. The survivor had been held hostage by Van for over two hours and I think he planned to kill her. I think that yeah. that's that fight part where he fights them is part of his MO and yeah. that's when he strangles them. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. That I, She's lucky she got away. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, that was on its way to be that. And to do, I mean, oh, you can go. I mean, was it's a cat and mouse, you know? You're you're playing, you're just batting her around like a like a little mouse. It's yeah, like oh, disgusting. you can leave, and then as she gets up to run away, he... yeah, just kidding. I'm gonna rape you again. I mean, mm. a horrible motherfucker. I know, I'm seriously. Sorry, but the survivor did report the charges on the day it happened, but declined to proceed because the officer who took the report made her feel uncomfortable. Eight months later, she saw on the news that Van had been arrested for multiple murders and recognized him as her attacker. She decided to proceed uh, with the charges and alerted law enforcement. And I would like to say that I think that was really brave of her. There are lots of stories out there about why people don't report sexual assault to police. And once she saw how extensive his crimes were, she decided to pursue the charges. In April 2016, defense attorneys tried to petition the court to separate the trials and were denied. Once that motion was denied, the defense filed another motion in August 2016 saying that Indiana death penalty was unconstitutional. The judge denied the motion in November 2016. However, even though the motion was denied, the defense was free to move forward in filing an appeal to the state's decision to try the case as a death penalty case. That decision was just decided in April 2017 the defense motion was denied and the trial will proceed as a death penalty case. As of now, there's still a ton of discovery evidence that's slowly making its way through the pretrial process. Currently, jury selection is slated to start in February 2018 with the actual trial, hopefully starting around mid-March. Throughout the pretrial phase, Van has declined to go to court unless he absolutely has to. Instead, he has his lawyers go alone on his behalf. As of May 2017, Darren Dion Van has been in jail for over three and a half years and is now 46 years old. So on to final thoughts. Uh, okay, this case, I'll be <laughs> honest, it's, it's really freaked me out it researching is. it. It's creepy. You know, I'm not sure what exactly it was because most of the cases we research are horrible. Yeah, but... And I'm kind of, I don't want to say like used to reading it, but I kind of am used to reading really awful things. But this case just really stuck with me. Van is just a total cold calculating predator. Him not reacting to the judge in his first hearing other than to just try and stare her down silently really gives me the creeps too. Because yeah. like, I can like put myself in the courtroom mm-hmm. like you can like feel the tension management. just reading about it. Yeah. So, and oh God, it just gives me the literal creeps it's probably exactly what he wanted he was trying to freak her out you know i think so and i think he just has like a lot of his reasoning seemed to be like well i was just mad yeah he seems to like have a really big problem with people doing something he doesn't like or making him mad mm-hmm. but he's literally shackled so what's he gonna do other than stare the judge down right and then my heart just goes out for the victims because once again we're looking at a group of people who were marginalized and you know because they're marginalized, they're more likely to be a victim of a crime. Mm-hmm. 
several of his known victims were sex workers or used drugs, which can make working with the police really difficult. Yeah. Because sometimes it's hard for law enforcement, for whatever reason, to investigate the case beyond just their circumstances. Right. If that makes sense. It's like once they find out they're, oh, they're a sex worker. Oh, they're using drugs. That seems to be where the investigation ends. Right. Like, yeah. And, you know, we've discussed it before. They don't always provide appropriate recourse for victims once they find out about you know their lifestyle so right they they write it off a bit it's like oh you're just a victim of circumstance and it's not our problem i guess yeah i guess so you know many times these victims don't even report crimes for the fear of being prosecuted too it's like well you know someone who's a sex worker says well this guy raped me and they were like what were you doing oh you're a sex worker well now i'm gonna arrest you for prostitution Mm -hmm. And then, so what, what, yeah, what recourse do they have? Yeah. What incentive do they have to come forward? Yeah. And I think there's a lot of parallels between this case and the Grim Sleeper case, like you said, the one in Los Angeles. I think the offender profile is similar and the victim profile is similar. The Mm -hmm. offender profile is similar. You know, they seemed to operate for a long time. Right. Under the radar. And the victims seem to not be connected as being related to a serial killer until much later. Mm-hmm. Like, it's kind of a fluke that they ended up catching Van. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if the friend, Africa's friend, hadn't come forward and given them all this information. They wouldn't, I don't, they would never have caught him. They probably would well, have just written her crime off, too. Right. I don't, yeah. I doubt if they just, because Africa would have eventually been found. And do you think, yeah, without your you know friend giving the information do you think they would have really pursued a dead and i'm i'm, I'm saying this just <clears throat> to be facetious and i don't really mean it but a dead hooker is what i feel like how they would think of it that's oh, just another dead hooker whatever you i know? mean they said that much when we were you know looking into the research for the grim sleeper case yeah. like they literally said well what's another dead hooker right and what, what was it no such human say oh no human involved no human involved An yeah nhi and, case exactly which is if you didn't listen to our first episode Police slang for pri- for crimes involving prostitutes. Well, they call them specifically black prostitutes too. I believe with the um, a lot case. of times, yeah, yeah, which is just <laughs> oh, makes me so mad. Yeah. Um, I also think that Van has been committing crimes for a long period of time, and I won't be surprised that if we find out his first murder took place long before his release from prison in 2013. Yeah, I mean, you said it all. Uh, all I just kind of going through this just kept thinking about just these poor women's final moments. I just, you know, going through my head and I just, and also thinking, you know, I know we just talked about, but yeah, how hard it must be. Imagine if you are involved in something that's technically illegal, like prostitution or you do drugs and you can't go to the police for help, you know, and, and I, because they can't go to the police for help, I feel like we've created, we, you know, as a society, kind of the victim pool for people like Darren and the Grim Sleeper and all these people to pick on because they're not going to go to the police because they're scared of getting, like, okay, I'm going to go to, like you said, I've been raped. What, a prostitute? Oh, I'm going to arrest you for prostitution. Or, or I'm just not going to look into your case. You know, you get the what did you expect answer, so they don't get any respect either, and they're made to feel even yeah, worse. Yeah, you're going to get the, well, you should make better decisions mm-hmm. lecture. Exactly. And then sent on your way. Yeah, you're, you know, and I, in the end, it's kind of, eh, it's not our problem, you know. Um, so it's just got to be really scary just thinking that, how, let's say that is your life, and that's what you have to do for a living, and I'm sitting here going, how scary that you have no recourse. You know, at least I think we take, you know, for granted sometimes that, yeah, if somebody comes and takes something of mine or hurts me, 
I will go to the police and I will file charges because I can and these people can't. It's a very scary thing. I'm just thinking about being in their shoes and like how very scary situation I feel for them. And I, I wish I wish they didn't get treated that way. It, yeah, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, I think any crime against anybody should be treated equally. It doesn't matter what you do <laughs> who, or who you are or whatever or whatever racially preconceived notion mm-hmm. the police have about you. Right. It just should all be the same. And, you know, unfortunately so, it isn't. It isn't. Yeah. She was spunky. She was, uh, she's a ray of sunshine. She's encouraging. She was kind, compassionate, considerate. Africa never met a stranger. Um, she, she loved life. Uh, she liked to have fun. She liked to make people laugh. Um, she gave people things to think about, too. Um, she thought outside of the box. Um, she loved to sing. Um, that's one thing that everybody's remembering Africa for, aside from her smiling. Just, just Africa is her voice. Like, she could, she could melt your heart with that voice. You know, uh, she wanted to be a singer. She told me, Mama, one day I'm going to be famous. And I always backed behind that, you know, because I believed in her. You didn't want her to be famous this way, though? No. No, I didn't. This is not the idea of, uh, no. Didn't want her name out there for this. No. That uh, wraps us up for this episode of Misconduct. Thank you for joining us. If you have any questions or comments about today's case, head over to our Facebook group or find us on Instagram or Twitter at Misconduct Podcast. And so we want to take a second to clarify what ended up being a point of confusion for some people. So we got a review on iTunes asking us to clarify that our music is done by the Black Tapes podcast to make sure that they got credit where credit is due. Since it wasn't an email, we had no way to contact the person directly mm-hmm. other than to just kind of stick it in at the end here. Uh, but to clear up any misconceptions, we did want to say that our music is done by a band called The Blank Tapes, and we're personal friends with them. And they helped us out so much by mm-hmm. you know doing our music for them. We basically said, make us something creepy. And they did. And they delivered. In- they did deliver. Yep. <laughs> they delivered in full. Yeah. Uh, but we did want to say thank you to the reviewer for you know, asking us to clarify because we would never want to like steal from somebody or have you think that we're stealing somebody. Like it's really important for creators to get credit for their work. Absolutely. And we would never do that. And we don't want you to think we were ripping off anyone's music. So um, if you haven't already, look up the blank tapes on Bandcamp and give their stuff a listen. I promise it's not as creepy as our intro music. (laughs) No, they're just awesome and did our intro music amazingly. But they're, uh, yeah, they like, Colleen said, personal friends of ours, the Blank Tapes, B-L-A-N-K Tapes, uh, and they're on Bandcamp. Um, I'll find them on Facebook as well, and give them stuff in Hey guys, it's Lainey, host of the True Crime Fan Club podcast. If you're a true crime addict like I am, then my podcast is for you. It's a podcast for the ultimate true crime enthusiast, giving you a glimpse into the life and crimes of the most demented minds. You won't want to miss an episode. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.